podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Shane Warne. But this time we get on another Victorian and Australian league spinner to discuss him. Bryce McGain, cricket coach. We chat about Bryce's personal origin story, hum, control, mental game, using the crease, technique, variations, new Warne versus old Warne, and the time Warne used props to help McGain try and dismiss Simon Cattage. I want to ask you something. You're a little bit older than me, Bryce. I don't want to throw you under the bus there, but a couple of years older than me. What was leg spin like in the 1980s in Melbourne? Yeah, really good question because it wasn't cool. It wasn't uh, (laughs) popular. (laughs) It went very much unheralded. No one understood it. Least of all me, I suppose, is coming through. And I, I honestly have no idea why I do it. And I've often been asked, you know, why do you do that? It, It, to me, it must have just been a natural thing. I tried to bowl quick, but, you know, it, like everyone does, you know, with Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson, you know, there's some pace around, but it didn't come out of me. It just came out slow. So I, I thought, oh, smarter thing to do would start spinning the ball. So it was really un- an unknown package. So I guess it was start from scratch and, uh, and and just explore and learn what makes it hard to get the ball belted over your head, particularly in the schoolyard when you're playing with tennis balls. I, I found I could hit them. It didn't matter how fast you bowled them. You could hit them anywhere. But the spin maybe stopped me uh, going to fetch the ball more often, made it a bit harder to hit. I'm assuming, you know, when you're playing in the 80s, you know, whether it be school cricket or with your mates or whatever, there probably weren't that many leg spinners around. No, absolutely not. No, no, it was really, really rare. There was uh, – because I played on synthetic, I think a lot of bowlers adapted to just bowling darts, I suppose is the best way to put it. The undercutter, slider, off-spin type thing, not really getting over the top. There's no Nathan Lyon to it. It's ripping around the side of the ball, and that kind of skidded a bit. And I suppose that's what spinners do. They adapt, and that was more likely to hit the stumps. So there were lots of balls that I bowled in juniors that, you know, would just simply bounce over the stumps. You, you to get a bold was ridiculous. They were missing a full toss to get a bold. So it just wasn't a mode of dismissal when I was a kid. It's funny you say that because I played on synthetic wickets as well. And it actually helped me when it rained because you could skid the odd ball through and that's when you'd get a lot of bold in LBW. The rest of the time, if you bowled it wrong and on a synthetic wicket, it like could go over someone's head. You almost had to have someone out on the hook, didn't you? It was ridiculous. <laughs> I want to briefly tell your career through Shane Morn. So 1992 and 1993 is the big bang. You're only a couple of years younger than Shane was. In 1992, 1993, he's taking over the world. Where's your cricket at at that stage? So I'm just moving. It was my last year playing for my local club, Mornington, and had eyes on playing premier cricket or district cricket as it was at the time and and, and wanting to move up to town. But there was an inkling that, Frankston Peninsula might be on the radar. So I'd actually started uni. I'd started work. I'd gone to, already done a year in Ballarat at uni when I was sort of 18, 19, and then came back and I was working. So I was working in town in in Melbourne, in the city, and then uh, lived up there. And then I was playing my last year at Morton, which ended up being my last year. But I, I knew that something was happening because they were contacting a lot of local players about, hey, it's a good thing to do is move up into district cricket. 
So safe to say you're nowhere near the pathway at this point. You're not on anyone's radar. You're not even in district cricket. So you're a long way away. 1999, Shane Warne wins the World Cup. Where's Bryce McGain in 1999? I'd played seven years of Premier cricket with Frankston. I'd been dropped more times than I'm being promoted. I played ones and twos all my life there. I'd, I played in the first ever game for Frankston Peninsula, and that was a real a monumental occasion. I guess back then, the gap between local cricket and Premier firsts was so big, it was ridiculous. It took me six games to get one wicket. It was hard going. It was back in the days where spin bowlers never played one-day cricket particularly leg spinners, you would never play a one-dayer. So you're back down in the twos. Every time there was a one-dayer, you're back down. Even though it ended up being probably one of my best performing formats, it was kind of irrelevant. It was all medium pace and um, and maybe some tight darts or something like that from the spin option, the part-time spinner. So I'd finished seven years with Frankston and had been approached a number of times by clubs in the city who knew that I lived in the city. So I was actually travelling back close to where I grew up in Mornington to go and play at Frankston. So as much as being part of the furniture, I was starting to think about, well, what if I stayed in town and played for a club in town? It's still fair to say you're still not really on the radar of Victorian cricket at that point, are you? No, not really. At this point in 99, I'd been on a spin week at the Centre of Excellence in Adelaide. It was the last year they had the Cricket Academy in Adelaide and they would run a week with spinners went over. Now, I think I was a fill-in because I had next to no notice to go. The last person thought of, and I was 28. So most of the people in the academy there, Dave Hussey, he's 18. That cohort, Adam Voge is bowling his left arm leggies. He's 18, part of that Cricket Academy. So that's the sort of ilk that was there. And then suddenly, who's this guy? this 28-year-old that rolled over there. So I had a taste of some proper coaching, and that was Terry Jenner and Kerry O'Keefe giving me an idea, hey, this is what you need to do, not what you are doing. So that was the most helpful part of my whole career, I think. 2005 is obviously sort of the the series that elevates him onto another level because every other time he plays great, Australia's great around him, right? And that's the one time when it's kind of him bat and ball on his own. By 2005... You're now finally in the pathway of Victorian cricket and you're getting closer, aren't you, to actually playing? Well, I, I played three games by that stage uh, sure. for Victoria. Yep. So when I moved to Paran Cricket Club in the year 2000, 18 months later, I played for Victoria. So it absolutely helped me. And there's a few aspects to that. It wasn't necessarily that it was a highly successful club at the time. We'd lost a lot of players who'd gone elsewhere, but what the club did have is a, a teammate of mine, John Moss, and John ended up playing a lot of games for Victoria, but we would just turn up to training. He was always there early wanting to work on his game, and he was an unreal player of spin, like he was so good. So that just made me better. I'd just bowl a little bit more to him, and it helped me enormously. And for him, it was, a, I guess, a good tune-up as well. And then we'd get on with the rest of training. But I look back at it, and that had a big difference. So I played three games I debuted against New South Wales where we'd had a win. I'd actually replaced Funky Miller in the Victorian team and Paul Rifle had just retired as well. So it was this tumultuous time where there was a lot of new faces. Andrew McDonald came into the team, as did I, around that period. So it was just a big change that was going on in Victorian cricket. So I'd played three games early 2000s and then after three games with Cameron White doing well, he was the captain and bowling leg spin at that stage, it was back to Premier Cricket for me and back to Paran. 
I mean, the reason I ask all this is because you are just a couple of years younger than Shane. You come through the same city as him. You're doing everything. Everything goes absolutely brilliantly for his career. And everything is so slow in your career too. So in 2005, you said you played three games and you must be, what, about 34 at that point? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. 33, 34. Yeah. yeah. And so... What's the impact that Shane Warne sort of has on that first, let's say, you know, the first 16 years of your sort of league spinning district, occasional Victorian playing career? Because he's there and thereabouts, even if he's not always around. And obviously the specter of him in what you're supposed to be as a league spinner, also occasionally, you know, you're going to turn up, he's going to be at training, all these sorts of things. It must have affected you, even if it was at a distance at times. It certainly had an impact on me. And for a lot of it, I was a fan, I suppose. I really enjoyed it. I love going to the cricket. In actual fact, there's a picture that was published recently, and it was when Warney went on the ground with a helmet, and the MCG crowd was doing a Mexican wave, chucking stuff everywhere. And a mate of mine said, oh, we were at that. And I go, yeah, we were. I think we're down, you know, just near the sight screen in the southern stand. And and then- I was at that game too. They, it was where they were throwing the golf balls at the England players, remember? Yeah, exactly. And uh, everything was being thrown. Like there was, it started off with fruit and bananas and up goes all the cups and everything. And then someone, a pineapple would go flying and people would be laughing. And suddenly then stuff's going on the field. It was, it was out of control. And we actually happened to be in the background of a photo. I'm just standing there like a fan, like anyone else, just enjoying the cricket. Oh, you're in the photo? Yeah. So my friend pointed it out. So I I guess it's things like that. You, you, You get absorbed in it. I really love the fact that he changed cricket, and I know a lot of people have said that, but he made spin bowling a real factor in limited overs, and it had just never worked that way. You know, I know there was a World Cup when Deepak Patel opened the bowling, and that sort of revolutionised things. What, spinners can open the bowling? But to really be a genuine match winner, to turn games on their head, they're the type of things that inspired me from a distance. So it helped make me believe he spun the ball like no one else has ever done. So I didn't mirror it and go, no, I can do that. It was more of, gee, that makes me want to be better. And I think I can make an impact wherever I'm playing. And to be honest, at that stage, we're talking 2005, I'd played three Shield games. That was my dream. I'd achieved it. I'd done everything that I needed to do. You know, I'm a club cricketer who kept trying to get better, who then got three games for Victoria. What an honour. Like, just amazing. I, I, I just... To me, at that point in time that you've sort of got to the timeline, for me, that was awesome. We're going to pause your timeline for a moment, and we're going to talk about Shane Warne. You, as a club spinner who continually got better until he played incredible level of cricket, and me, as a club spinner who didn't get any better and has recently broken his arm in six places and may never be able to bowl leg spin properly again, we're going to do a technical breakdown. I think the first thing you've already mentioned there is the revs on the ball you would have been like me. What first thing we really heard about Shane Warne was that the ball made a sound yeah. in the air. Did you ever like play in a club game against him or anything where you heard that up close early on? Or was that something that was more you, you heard it through the media like I did? Yeah, just heard it through the media. And I guess that's where I did much of my learning it was there in what they were, you know, it, the ball actually has a sound. And talking to players at Premier Cricket who played against him, it was not unlike Abdul Qadir came out to grade cricket in Melbourne for a year, and we did hear that. Like, that was unreal. Like, that was something special. I think he took some ridiculous amount of wickets, 60-plus wickets in a season, and uh, made everyone look a bit silly. But he had that same sort of thing. So it just heightened 
again, to me, gee, it's important to spin the ball hard. Gee, you've got to really be able to rip the ball as hard as you can. So it sort of triggered things like that. Other things when they started putting on TV the speed gun and they showed that the spinners were actually changing their pace. So that twigged to me, gee, that's a good thing to do. I wonder what happens if I try that. And sure enough, like it just probably the best variation I bowled was just the same leg spinner, just a bit slower. So there were things like that, that, that that's how I picked up little snippets of things along the way and just gave them a go. Oh, I'll give that a go next time I'm down the nets and next time I'm playing, I'll put it into my game. And so him to put those revs on the ball, it has to be a combination of two things. A, he's a physical specimen that, to be fair, you and I are not. Yeah. Very, very broad shoulders, incredibly strong wrists, hands, big hands as well. But it's also a technical thing, isn't it, to be able to get that many revs on the ball. So he had to be technically correct, which comes back to sort of Terry Jenner and Bob Simpson really working with him very hard. But then he had the physical. You could be as technically correct as Shane Warne, but not be able to put the amount of revs on it, I would assume. Absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of spinners have come along the way. Terry Jenner's influenced a a whole two generations of spinners from Shane Warne and, and lots of others afterwards. But for Warney, it's the combination of both. So the technical brilliance, and that's where Terry Jenner was absolutely outstanding. He's like no other. He was able to break down the right things to do. Some of that is alignment, so aligning your body to your target. I used to get really closed off. Like many spinners, we sort of came in on big angles, and I I look at even footage of John Embry and things like that. They'd be coming in on these enormous angles across the crease and nearly getting back on and then pivoting around like a discus thrower, I suppose, at the point of release. And I thought that was going to help me. I thought that, well, I've seen that. They're good. They're playing test cricket. Well, it's got to work. But it was Terry Jenner that broke that down and just said, no, no, no. I want you to be straight and aligned towards your target. So exactly side on to your target. And everything needs to move in a bit more of a vertical plane like that, rather than that sort of discus thrower like that. It's a bit more vertical. So a little hard to do on, on camera like this. It will work fine for the YouTube people. Everyone else has no idea that you're dancing for me at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it was more of that alignment. Yeah. When I tried that, I just went, you've got to be kidding me. Terry, this can't be that simple because the ball's coming out. It's drifting a foot. It's then hitting the wicket and spitting off the wicket. I can't believe this is me bowling that. There were things like that. That's how much of a difference it makes. It genuinely is tuning up. If it's a Formula One car, it's all those little nuances, the little tuning up, the alignment, all of that 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 actually comes towards it. But there's one other huge key to it, and I reckon you know what it is, Jared, too. Well, no, I don't. The next thing I was going to mention about him technically was the power through the crease. Yeah. Is that what it was? Well, it's a combination of, yes, that is it. So he does drive through, but what leads that and is probably the key to leg spin bowling, to any spin bowling, Is that the front arm? Is your front arm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And how to use that, it's high, but then it leads out towards your target. A lot of people would be familiar with what fast bowlers do. They reach high and then pull down, so they generate power that way. But it's a little bit similar to that, but it needs to lead out in line with where you want to bowl and really specifically where you want the ball to pitch. Mm. It aligns everything. So then it makes your spinning hand simply just there to put as many revs on the ball. Everything is aligned and guided. It's nearly your radar, your uh, tracking device is your front arm and how to use that. 
Those two things, that alignment and using the front arm, I went away from that spin week with my finger bleeding because it would bowled so much. We'd bowl two hours every morning, two hours every afternoon, and a lot of the guys just couldn't bowl anymore. But I, I was just blown away, and that was for six days straight. I was just blown away with, I can't believe this is me doing this. Like the mm. ball is now drifting miles. It's not just landing and friendly spinning away. It had that big a difference on me. Now, in between that, there was some rough-looking deliveries as well. Of course, it didn't all just fall into place. But they were the key things. And when I thought about it and when I knew that and then I looked at what Shane Warne did and how he does it, they were the things. That was the absolute key and why it was just so deadly accurate but had the confidence to spin the cover off the ball. Yeah. An amazing combination. So when now, if I look at a young leg spinner, so I remember when Yassir Shah came through, my first thing was, it's a strong front arm. He should be able to keep this going regularly. And then you see there's a couple of Australian leg spinners come through and some of the overseas ones where I was like, well, they won't be able to consistently do what they're doing. It's that clear, isn't it? And then I think the other thing is that Shane Warne, because he walked in, you don't necessarily understand that he's getting the pace through the crease. I mean, Craig Howard, who's he's the third leg spinner. I'm not counting Cameron White in this one, but he's the third Victorian leg spinner of your kind of era. Yeah. All three of you are the same age. And I remember him saying that everyone tried to walk in after Warren, whereas actually what they should have been doing was running through the crease because he was so powerful that he could get the power through the crease anyway because of that front arm, whereas actually you probably needed a little bit more momentum going through, if, especially if you were a younger leg spinner. Yeah, I agree with that. He was coached to slow down. He was a Tiger O'Reilly, and I'm a bit of a connoisseur of leg spinners, but for those tuning in, he sort of came in like a medium pacer, Anil like and would bowl quick. But what we had was this incredible spinning leg break, amazing wrong and incredible bounce because he's so tall. He was such a difficult handful. And I remember being at trainings when he was there, and he was obviously playing for Victoria well before me, and I was just going, huh. I'll never do this. Like, okay, <laughs> that's what it takes. Boy, I'm a long, long way from that. But I guess as I matured a bit and observed more spinners, everyone's got their own sort of way, don't they? Mm. Particularly leg spinners, there are all different shapes and sizes and styles. Warren's walking was because he was a powerful guy and you do need momentum through the crease. It's so important. I was probably written about as having a, a whippy action of sort of tried to move my body through the crease pretty quickly. You know, I'm a pretty lean sort of guy. No comparison to Shane Warner, who's boot like an AFL footballer. I had to generate that whippiness, I suppose, with that quick arm action. The next thing I think is quite interesting is, I'm, I'm going to uh, talk about Stuart McGill here for a moment. Stuart McGill quite often spun the ball further if you looked at the pitch than Shane Warner did. Yeah. But Stuart Correct. McGill, when he did that, it's always all side spin. Whereas with Shane Warne, it was a lot of top spin. So the difference is, I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say here, but most spinners can do one or the other, right? They can beat you with the extra bounce that they get from the top spin, or they can beat you with the side spin. The bowlers who have the ability to do both means that they're keeping bat pad in, they're keeping that, and they can also still beat you on the side. So Nathan Lyon has a little bit of the both, but Shane Warne had a massive amount of the both because at any stage, the ball was going to pop up and hit the glove or hit you a bit higher on the bat than you expected. And of course, he could also side spin it. We don't talk about that very much, and it's really more of an Australian thing, although you see our Ashwin do it a lot now as well. The ability to be able to beat people for height and laterally is huge with a spinner. 
Yeah, it is. And if we think about topspin with tennis, you know, the impact that it makes, it you can hit the ball at pace, and but it's going to drop down so quickly. So it's often deceiving the batsman with the drop on the ball where they think it's going to land in a particular area, but it's often 30 or 40 centimetres shorter, 50 centimetres sometimes. And that's where they're pushing forward, stuck on the crease and feeling for the ball and reaching out, trying to smother it. And that was a huge advantage in comparison to the two, I suppose, is Shane Warne, because that was his mode of dismissal quite a lot. And that mm. you could, a lot of the edges he got were ripping up the bat. They'd flick the shoulder of the bat rather than hitting the side of the bat going sideways. So it had that extra bounce and, and zip about it as batsmen sort of push forward. But look, I was lucky enough and probably, you know, Stuart McGill didn't need to do this, but New South Wales later on beat us in a shield final and we sat down for a few hours and he was so generous with his time. And remarkably, I felt when he said, I wish I could do what you and Warney could do. Now, what he was talking about is having the control and that was probably one of my things. I could control the ball well and I was still trying to rip the cover off it. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Every ball I'm trying to spin it as hard as I could. But he said, I wish I had that. But he said, I I couldn't do that. So what I had to do is spin it as hard as I could in both different directions. He had a well-disguised wrong'un. So that was a, a weapon in itself. So just... Two unbelievable leg spinners of the same era that, boy, how lucky was I just to share some moments with them. Yeah, and the control thing, that was my next thing. So it starts with the top spin and the leg spin. I think that most leg spinners can probably go a little bit between a top spinner and a leg spinner, but I think that even very good ones like Stuart McGill, probably after a while, it gets a little muddled in your wrist. Whereas I always felt with Shane Warne, the next ball, if you said, oh, we want you to do a top spinner, but it still spins away from the bat. He had the ability to control that. So that's the controlling the wrist position and the, the spin that he got. But the next bit is, if you're spinning the ball that much consistently, how on earth did he manage to actually land the ball? on? I mean, he was as accurate as Anil Kumble and spinning the ball three times as much. And Anil Kumble is obviously a master leg spinner, incredible bowler. But to be able to do that while ripping the ball, is that just the combination of the great technique and the freakish physical, or is there something else that we're missing there? Yeah, look, it was definitely those two things. Yes, they contribute to it, but he wasn't perfect all the time, and he admitted that, and that made me feel quite good because I certainly had some bad days. But what he would do, and he said it was ridiculous, he said he felt that going around the wicket gave him more room for error. And some of his days, he said, ended up being my best days when, in actual fact, the ball wasn't feeling good coming out of the hand. I lost all my rhythm. It wasn't great. But suddenly I'm just taking bags and bags of wickets as it's such a peculiar line and length and it's spinning. And, you know, we've just watched highlights for the last week of people looking ridiculous trying to kick the ball away and not knowing what to do because it was, who knew what to do? You don't Mm. practice that ever. No one practices a leg spinner thrown into footmarks nearly off the pitch. It just didn't exist before, did it? Like, I mean, you, you look at some of those angles and I mean, someone on, online was saying to me, oh, I, I can't believe you said Mike Gatting didn't do much wrong. And I was like, Mike Gatting was facing something he'd never faced before. Yes, in, in retrospect, he would be outside leg stump either patting it away or smothering the ball or using his feet. But in real world, he'd never seen that before. He didn't expect that to be coming, did he? That's exactly the point. No one had seen this stuff. No one had seen a leg spinner go around the wicket to the right-hander. That's a strategy that's used for the mere mortal leg spinners of defensive. It's a 7-2 type field and they're kind of banned now, those type of fields. But it's all leg side field and you just chuck it out there and, oh, we hope something happens. But he did admit often that 
sometimes it was when he wasn't feeling that great, he could go around for a couple of overs and then he'd just build up pressure on the batsman because it's so foreign, it's so odd. And then he'd get back to plan A, which is obviously over the wicket, pitching the ball in line with the stumps and sometimes outside leg and clipping the top of off. Well, the, the other thing with the control that I always felt quite interesting, I still do think he had... I mean, I don't think we'll ever see anyone who spun the ball that much with Rispin with that kind of control again. I think it was a freakish combination. The other thing that Craig Howard told me once was he said that when Warren bowled a bad ball, even from a young age, he'd watch him and Warren would make the batter feel like that was part of the plan. Right? So, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 you're right. I did overflight that and you smashed it back over my head because it was a step and hit ball. But that's what I wanted you to do. So if the next ball I do this, which is obviously complete blag, but the mental part of it, we can't undersell because leg spinners weren't, well, finger spinners, any spinners weren't really that aggressive. You did have guys like Bishop Beatty and Abdul Qadir that had come through, but in general, they were seen as a more timid species. And if Abdul Qadir was quite arrogant and confident in himself, you know, Shane Warne was like that on steroids, wasn't he? Absolutely. And that made the difference. I guess that's the uber elite players. You know, you see it in all the sports, that level of confidence, that self-belief of you're intimidated because I'm here. Michael Jordan had that in spades. <laughs> Shane Warne had that and he loved that. He loved that contest. He loved the battle. He would say words and we would say it's sledging, but it was never really about belittling someone. It was never necessarily really having a go at them about who they are. It was, you don't know what's going to happen here, do you? You're walking straight into this bear trap and it is that obvious and then the others around the bat would continue the conversation and he'd go back to his mark and no one would ever feel comfortable. And because of the oohs and the ahs and the the stare down the pitch and the the look at the batsman, <laughs> it's like he's doing my head in here. Like he, he, he is working me out. He knows what I'm thinking. He's reading my mind now and I'm actually shitting myself and he's reading, he's seeing it, he smells fear He's all over me. And that's how a lot of premier cricketers felt when they played against him. And that's how a lot of state cricketers felt. They just felt that intimidation factor. And then ultimately a mistake had happened and it's all over. And usually the last word went to Warney when he said, oh, I told you I'd get you. <laughs> and he also made a point to me when we were chatting about bowling. He said, you've got to get the guy that gets you for six. You've got to go get him then. You've got to get them out because they're so relaxed and cocky and all that. That's the moment to strike. And I really took that into my career, and it's so true. It's nearly like there's always a, a wicket after a drinks break or after a break because, you know, they're not quite as concentrated. After they hit a spinner for six, you know, ah, yeah, they get a chance to absorb the moment for a bit. That's the time to strike, and uh, it, it's a pretty successful formula. Wish you'd told me that about 15 years ago, Bryce. But <laughs> I just want to get into a couple of deliveries. I'm assuming you can bowl a flipper. Yeah. It, but maybe not, you know, test match quality bowler, but you can deliver it. Yes, correct. Yeah. How many people do you think really in the history of cricket, I mean, you and I are both massive leg spin nerds all the way back. How many th people do you really think in the history of cricket can actually bowl and deliver a flipper at test match quality? And regularly, I should say. I'm assuming there's less than 10. Yeah, I'd say so. Look, there's a lot of older ones that I've read about, like Larry Grimmett, who was mm. said to have a good flipper. I think he might have invented it, mightn't he? Or he was around at the, it certainly perfected it, if not invented it. So he must have had a big role to do with the flipper. Yeah, and it's the coolest delivery. Like, it really is quite phenomenal. And it's not the fact that it's just coming out fast. Warney chose to bowl it fast mm. to have the biggest impact, and that's what worked for him. 
but it wasn't always that type of delivery. It was a delivery a bit like a slice backhand in tennis where it's a more of a strategic type trajectory change. So often when it leaves the hand, the batsman, because they don't see the ball come up and out of the hand, out of the wrist doing that, it comes out the front. So it looks like, oh, it's going to be a short ball. I'll go on the back foot. And I know that some spinners along the way would bowl that deliberately full a bit. So the batsman's going back to a ball that's quite full. So it, it was deceiving in flight. One, because of the power and strength of the guy, you know, <laughs> he turned it into something that was at 100 and whatever kilometres an hour. It was way quicker. It skidded and it was this incredible weapon. But it took its toll on him physically as well. It took its toll because it was such an odd rotation of the shoulder and it really did contribute. He's certain that it contributed. And after his shoulder surgery, he never really nailed it as good as what he did beforehand. No, it certainly disappeared. I mean, in some ways, the flipper sort of stayed on as part of his legend, but it disappeared as his bowling. Like it just, it, it disappears from, from the second part of his career. The other ball that I find really interesting, which also played a part in his shoulder problems, is the wrong one because Abdul Qadir, Chandrasekhar, yeah, a lot of these guys, the great leg spinners sort of before Warren, Bill O'Reilly, all those guys had a great wrongen. That was it. I mean, when leg spinning first got big, it was when all the South Africans learnt the wrongen, right? It went from yes. being a good art to being an unplayable art. And then you have the biggest second generation, and you could say even Anil Kumble, he had a good wrongen, but he wasn't wrongen dependent. You, you know, the two biggest leg spinners of the sort of later period were not wrong and specialist in the way that Abdul Qadir was a wrong and specialist or Mushtaq Ahmed was a wrong and specialist. How much of that was just because his technique was so made for leg spin? He wasn't quite front on enough. Is that a technical thing? Uh, probably a combination of, of that and maybe the conditions as well in plain more Australian conditions. It's a delivery that if it's not on the money in Australian conditions, because it's not so variable, it's not spinning as much. If you miss your length, or your line, it gets dealt with, even if they don't really pick it. Mm. If it's over-pitched, then it's driven and it's belted. Australian batsmen, are, <laughs> that's how they need to play, and they have the confidence to launch you down the ground. You know, you wouldn't dare doing that in a big spinning wicket in the subcontinent. It's so difficult to do that. It's the highest risk. Because of the overspin, it sits up on the Australian wickets too, doesn't it? So if you get it short, it also gets whacked. It does. So I think it's the margin for error, and that's probably, well, certainly within me, that's how I felt. I felt that gee, I can land it and I, I need to show that I've got it so that batsmen are looking for the different variations, but it wasn't necessarily a wicket-taking weapon that I used consistently. I did take first-class wickets with a wrongen, but it wasn't my go-to, but you still needed to show it. That's quite interesting. I never thought about the Australian aspect. Weirdly, as a very crap leg spinner, when I moved to the UK, I used the wrongen a lot more almost straight away. Partly because yep. there's no wrist spin over here, so no one's ever picked one. <laughs> so They haven't seen know, it, yeah. They don't know what's happening anyway until you get to the higher levels of cricket. I, was, I remember one day accidentally playing too high a level of cricket and the guy was picking it. And I was like, oh, God, no one's picked my wrong in four years. Now I've got to actually bowl properly again. But you're <laughs> right. You know, in Australia, it really does bounce up and it can be hit. So that's interesting. So I always thought it was because he had such a, an aligned technique for like, – so if you look at Mushtaq Ahmed or Abdul Qadir, they're a little bit more open – and so I would think that yeah. the wrong and should come from, if you're a little bit more open, it should be a little bit easier to bowl. Whereas for him, he'd almost have to bring his shoulder around. And I thought that might've even brought about the shoulder problems. 
Yeah, and I think having big, strong shoulders, they're not quite as mobile. And Fair that point. was probably, it wasn't just as, as as supple as maybe us with less big shoulders. So look, it probably all just came into what he preferred to do. But if you're getting truckloads of wickets with a really good leg break, why on earth would you want to go to it? And that was his point. He goes, what are you going to do when you're on a hat-trick? What are you going to bowl? And I go, oh, I don't know, what, leggy? And he goes, yeah, you bowl your best ball. What are you going to do when you're under pressure? Well, you're going to bowl your best ball. What are you going to do when you're having the greatest day of your life? Your best ball's working really well, so keep bowling it. Yep. So it just had this perspective and and obviously varying pace and and also the lines and getting batsmen, you know, driving against spin and things like that are the 101 warns. But look, it probably had a combination of all those things we're chatting about as to why he didn't use it necessarily as his go-to maybe A, B, C, D, D variation option. And so the other one for me is the slider, which I think, well, by the end of his career was by far his most dangerous mm. delivery. And I don't know if it was him or Shahid Afridi or even Anil Kumble where I first noticed it, but you suddenly start thinking, well, wait a minute, if I can make this thing look like a leg spinner and it doesn't spin away, the only semi-elite skill I have as a leg spinner is I can bowl a slider that drifts if you're a top-level batter, you go, oh, it's drifting, so he's about to spin it, and it goes dead straight. And that was something I learned from Shahid Afridi because he was really good at making the ball still move and then go straight on. But that ball for Warren really becomes the most important ball, especially as cricket changes and umpires start giving out LBWs. But his ability to basically not save his shoulder but not put the same amount of revs on the ball and stay as dangerous. I almost think he was more dangerous when he had the ability to bowl a ball that looked like it was going to spin and not and then bowl the ball that spun. That's all he needed by the end. Yeah, it was. And it's a real subtle change to a slider that the way I went about it was I'd deliberately try and miss the seam. And I just angle the seam a little bit. It's like, a, I guess, I think Graham Swan did it better than most as an off spinner who'd hit the seam. And then he'd angle the seam back a little bit in his hand and, and release it. And it had just skid on straight. Left-handers were, particularly Australian left-handers, had a nightmare facing that. But that's how I went about it. And again, it was just observation, really. It was observation going, gee, that's a good ball. But you have to play. You mm. can't just let it go or play for the outside and cover spin. If he's just pitching in line with the stumps and it goes straight and it hits the pad, well, the umpire's up and it was such a weapon. I really enjoyed it bowling to left-handers where there was some spin and I would stay over the wicket. I wouldn't go around the wicket and create the big angle and a lot of leggies nowadays do that, but I'll stay over the wicket and look to spin the ball back down the line. I'm trying to beat their inside edge by spinning it through the gate, getting bowled LBW, but in reality, I wanted to set up for that ball that just slid across them and brought in and beat the outside or took the outside edge. So it was a great weapon and boy, he just perfected it and it became a dominant weapon, particularly in one-day cricket as well. Mm. Test cricket, obviously, but in one-day cricket, it was such a tremendous ball. All right. I'm going to ask you for your preference here. Do you prefer Shane Warne before the shoulder injury or after the shoulder injury? Because he's two different bowlers. He doesn't spin the ball as much. The flipper goes away. There's no wrong-ins in the second half of his career. And that slider takes over. It's almost, he's probably bowling almost two, three and over at times. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I must say, I liked his early stuff because <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're talking like, I don't know, U2 or something you like that. You're talking about some random band, yeah. I liked yeah, it before yeah. they were popular. <laughs> yeah, before they sold out, yeah. <laughs> so for someone at test level to bowl the flipper and have the impact it does, like, there's some of our greatest memories of cricket. 
have seen Richie Richardson, seen Daryl Cullinan struggle with that, seen, I was going to say, some of the English lineup, all of the English lineup <laughs> of all time, <laughs> pre-shoulder injury, battling with this ball that they just went, well, how can we possibly face it? And mm. I guess I just admired it so much. We can all play a bit of snooker and probably we can get a 20 break, but he was getting 127s all the time by bowling that flipper. It was incredible. See, I prefer the late stuff only because really? the early stuff is he's a physical freak, right? And yep. it's incredible to watch. You go back and you watch those balls up until 1998 and it is next level. But the fact that he still dominated when his body and his finger and his mm. shoulder weren't the same. And also I learned more of, I couldn't do what he did in the first half of his career, right? Like that was alien yeah. to me. The second half of his career, I could watch him and go, oh, okay, I see what he's doing now. Also just really little things that I think he got, way better at one was the pace that you were talking about before i think in the 2000s he really uses his pace a lot better the other one is yeah. and we never talk about this how good he was at using the crease he was the first guy i ever heard that talked about where he would come three balls close to the stumps one ball wide of the stumps and then when he bowled the ball wide of the stumps he would then go around the wicket so that the next angle was like huge you know he was creating yes. his own angles all that stuff, I'm not saying he didn't do it before, but he didn't need to. He had to pick up all those other little things. So he goes from being a physical supervillain to being a mental supervillain in the second part. I mean, it's just personal preference. Hey, you've convinced me. I'm on board. <laughs> We're in it together now. You're absolutely right. I hadn't considered all of those things, and it probably made it a bit more realistic for us mere mortals that, oh, okay, we can manage that. But he had so many just... I like to call them when I'm coaching the worn 101s. Look, this is where I get off from. It's not mine. This is him over and over. And I, I love teaching people the strategy of what he did. One of those is using the crease. He explained it so beautifully that he would go super wide over the wicket, then go right around the wicket. He's bowling the same ball, but it's just, he liked to call it the presentation. The presentation <laughs> of the ball is different. But I also like the fact that, you know, when he had men all around the bat, and they're all the catchers are in there. He would call that an attacking field. He would bowl defensively. So he wasn't trying to do a lot of variations. He was just trying to bowl a really tight line, maybe a bit flatter than what he normally would, but just be really defensive with his bowling. When he had five fielders out for a T20, all that sort of stuff, you could be really attacking, more flight, more drop, do your variations and all that. I think that combination in understanding that is a real breakthrough for a lot of spinners. I certainly found it once I got that and knew strategically what I was doing more, it was a big play in my game. Let's go back to your career. So obviously after that 2006, 2007, 2008, sort of the glory years of Bryce McGain, Shane Warne's talking you up at this point. Everyone is saying you're the best wrist spinner. Paul Bocasson has all of his different issues going through that period. There aren't that many other, you know, Stuart McGill's knee sort of goes and obviously, you know, probably just had enough of cricket in some ways there. You sort of come through there. What is it like to be someone who's played a whole career when no one's ever watched them before? Suddenly Shane Warne has an opinion on you in the local newspaper or in the, in the press. Yeah, that, that's bizarre. Like, honestly, that's ridiculous. But I guess the impact that he had, that he understood spinners and if you in some way got mentioned by warning and passing, oh, who's the next spinner? And I guess it's a common question I get asked now, well, who's the next spinner for, you know, what are you seeing out there in the same way? I don't have the same impact that Warney does when he would mention anyone. But yeah, look, that was remarkable. But he knew what it took and he told me that. He goes, I know what it takes and you've got what it takes. So keep doing what you do well. 
my real opportunity came when he retired in 2007. We won the Ashes 5-0, and that's where he said, I'm done now. And it was just a shock. It was a shock to everyone, the whole of Australia, but it was certainly a shock to the Victorian selectors who hadn't really thought of plan B in the second half of the year. So that's how I got my chance. And I was really fortunate in that game, which was at the SCG, that you got to take a spinner there. And Dave Hussey was my captain in that game. And I'd been away for four years. I've been playing Premier Cricket for four years. Successfully, I've been taking wickets and bowling well, and obviously ended up being the next cab off the rank, I suppose, is what they call it. But with Cameron White playing one-day cricket for Australia in that next block after the Test Series, they needed to take a spinner. So with Dave Hussey being my captain, he was very much the same ilk, the same things that Warney had said to me, which is, you know, the pitch is the same length. You know what you're doing. You dominate at Paran. So how about you just do that? And if I see anything that I reckon we might try, I'll come to you. And But otherwise, you just play it like you do at Paran. And that sentence alone, that conversation gave me such confidence. Like, it was amazing. It was just amazing, the, the influence that just positive words to spinners can do. You know, it just was terrific. So I took six wickets in that game and like I like to call it just caused headaches for the, the selectors from then on after because I'm way past my use by date for cricketers, not for league spinners, but for cricketers. You were about 35 at this point, weren't you? Yeah, working away in my mid-30s then. and Working in an office job? Yeah, like I was balancing the both then quite remarkably because I didn't know how long cricket was going to last. I was going to really take hold of it. And I guess I really enjoyed all the other things as well. Like I enjoyed keeping fit. So I guess a lot of guys who have played from when they're 20, 15 years of first-class cricket, they get to 35 and they're kind of done. But I was still fresh because I hadn't done that. I'd been working. I'd been doing my professional career outside of cricket up until that point. So I was really fresh and quite happy to do all the physical work that I could. So I still like it now. It's a good habit to have. So yeah, I guess through that period was just quite remarkable. It was just the greatest time to be playing cricket with a bunch of just great guys. We're all different. Like Victorian cricket then, we weren't cut out of the same mould. We weren't cookie cutter cricket team. You know, we had a forklift driver from Ballarat and Shane Harwood and an IT worker, you know, still doing work at night. Dirk Nannis was part of that group. He was working nights along with me. We often roomed together. It was one of the most spectacularly weird first-class teams. It was bizarre. As a writer, I lucked into it, right? Because no one else was writing about Victoria cricket and I started doing it. But then you're like, everyone's just a great story. Everyone from, you know, Brad Hodge, the young talent who got stuck and never made it at the top level the way that he probably should have. And, and you know, Cameron White was an incredible story. It, it was a fantastic team, a fantastically weird team and a very good team, of course, as well. You personally, you continue to have those couple of good seasons. But I think we're probably looking back, we know that you didn't have the kind of body that could have bowled for 12 or 15 years professionally. You talked about your finger bleeding. I know that you had trouble bleeding in a Sheffield Shield final as well. It was your shoulder that was the big problem when you went on the tour of India, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I actually, it was a really unique injury and it had to do with internally rotating your arm, which is completely unnatural. Uh, That's horrible. Yeah, which is what we do as leg spinners. So I actually tore the lat dorsi, so the side muscle, and it attaches, it's the back of your armpit. So yep. when I came back, so yeah, for those that can't see what you're doing, you're yep. grabbing the back of your armpit. <laughs> so, and that was but fundamentally the test. So I went over there and I played for Australia A versus India A and pre-operation, so I ended up 
tearing it and had to get an operation. Mm. But at that point, I'd taken three of the first four wickets against India, A. That was euphoria. Like, that was unbelievable. I had no idea that conditions could be that good for spin bowling. I'd just never experienced it. It was unbelievable. Like, and this is day one at Chinnaswamy Stadium in Bangalore, and I just thought, how good's this? I'm bowling to a young Virat Kohli and put one past the outside edge of the bat and thought, well, number four is coming up here. Little did I know that Virat Kohli would end up the way he is now. But uh, then I just felt this strain. I I strained the muscle at that stage and a few others at the back of my arm. So I guess from complete euphoria to, oh, geez, what's going on here? And then going through a big stint of rehab and then getting on the Australian tour, but still not being right and wondering why, this isn't repairing. I've never really had a muscle strain before. This is a bit odd. But leading into that test, a week out from the test, I just went, well, there's no point in me holding back here and just trying to nurse my way through. It's a little uncomfortable, but you've got to find out. And I did. I just went 100% in a net session and ended up tearing that lat dorsi off off the bone. So it's like a hamstring yeah. that gets torn off the bone like footballers, yeah. And then that year, you're kind of rehabbing after that, the South Africa tour is coming up. It felt like, I mean, I made a big deal of it on my blog at the time because it was good fun and everyone liked it. Yeah. And ever, you were everyone's favorite cricketer and no one had seen you play. It was hilarious. But, <laughs> you know, you were coming through, but it felt like you get all the way to India, you're definitely going to play in India. This happens and you have to come back home, right? Then the rehab takes a little bit longer than everyone thinks. It doesn't come up the way we want. Then eventually you do get picked for South Africa. But when you get picked for South Africa, you missed a plane, if I remember correctly, on the way over. Sorry, I remember all the details. Sorry about this, bro. It's all good. Hasn't everyone missed a plane? Probably not as important. Not before my first test. I mean, I never yeah. got the first test, but I reckon <laughs> that's a plane I'd be on. That's just me. <laughs> I've missed a lot of planes in my life, to be fair. So I, I can't hold you accountable for that. But you then go to South Africa. It's quite clear that you're not the bowler that you were before that period. I know you took a five for against South Australia, and that basically got you on that plane. But I remember the highlights of that thinking, that's not the Bryce I've seen bowl before. Yeah. You go yeah. to South Africa, you end up playing. In my memory serves, was Marcus North ill? He was the spinner at the time, yeah. which tells you everything about Australian cricket at that point. And he was ill. You come in and it is one of the most baffling debuts of any test ever. And I remember you telling me afterwards that like you knew halfway through, you just didn't have what you needed to have physically in that match. And Callis and Ashwell Prince just destroyed you. Yeah, and they had a pretty reasonable third string to their bow in A.B. de Villiers as well. He got 160, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So um, on a tremendously flat wicket at Cape Town, that's where the debut was. And what the difference was, it didn't mean that I couldn't necessarily spin the ball. I was still able to spin it, but I didn't have the change of pace that I would normally. So I couldn't go up the gears. So to bowl at my normal pace, which was probably around high 70s, sometimes around 80, that sort of 76 to 80 is around my sort of stock pace. That was taking maximum effort. And then to go higher, I I just didn't have that. And to bowl at the international level, even at first-class level successfully, you need that. You need to be able to get them stuck on the crease at times and bowl up in the 90s and be able to mix things up like that. And through no real fault of my own other than the injury was there. I certainly gave it everything, but it just was one of those things. And for a while there, it held a record that, well, not that I wasn't proud of because I gave my all. So I'm not ashamed to have gone and represented my country and given it everything. It was not as I dreamt, I suppose, is the best way to put it. The thing is that 
I mean, you said before you played the three first class games for Victoria. That was your dream, right? Mm. The fact that you went beyond that and played a test match, the fact that you bowled to Callis and AB de Villiers in a test match for Australia is so beyond probably, I don't want to, you know, cap your dreams. I'm sure, you know, in your REM sleep, you did that a couple of times. But, you know, when you were a 32-year-old working in an office in Melbourne for a bank, you weren't sitting there going, do you know what, in a couple of years, I can't wait to bowl to Callis, one of the greatest <laughs> players in the history of the game, right? You achieved that. I remember sending you a message afterwards and you sent me one back and you said, oh, well, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to keep trying to get better and try and play another test. It was obvious from an outsider perspective that that wasn't going to happen. But at the same time, no one really believed you were going to make it the first time. So I was kind of yeah. still like, that told me a lot about you as a person and the way that you recovered from it. And the fact that you stayed in cricket, like there are a lot of people who eat one test, doesn't go particularly well, and they disappear from the game. You know, you're still there. Yeah, look, and it took me probably another six months to get that strength back. So that was March. Later on in that season, I, I went played a couple of games with Essex, went over there. It would have been a longer stint. One of the internationals came back. And anyway, that's how it ended up, a couple of games. But there I started going, oh, how good's this place to bowl spin? Like I remember it as playing... Um, league cricket in Bristol for Knoll Cricket Club back in 95 and just loving every moment of that. And incidentally, that's the same area that Warney went as well. So the same influence was sent over there. So Sean Graff sent over Warney in 89. I went over in 95. He'd send over players to Knoll Cricket Club and just down the road was Imperial where Warney played and lived for his stint. But I remember back then going, how good's the you know, and it had to do with the clay wickets and things like that. The ball spinning, you can really, you know, and later in the season, the ball, had, you know, you could spin it square like it was unreal. So I really enjoyed that and feel really fortunate and proud to have gone and done that. I then was Shield cricket again the following year and we won a Shield final. Mm. So, you know, there was still better to come. And so I was probably bowling better the next year, 12 months later, than ever in my career, having overcome the setback. But rightfully and uh yeah probably i would have liked to have another crack but uh it, it wasn't to be and i, I suppose they've they got to make a judgment and made a judgment on that day or those days thanks so much for coming on i know you know obviously he just passed so recently so mm. the memories are do you have a, like a particular memory of an interaction or something that you had with warney that sort of sticks out for you yeah, he spent some time and he went around to because spin was in crisis <laughs> when i was playing for victoria there was conferences going on about, well, how do we improve spin? What do we got to do? Prepare wickets. We've got to do this. We've got to cap the overs that fast bowlers can bowl. So we've got to give more overs to spinners. All these crazy ideas were going out there. And uh, so Warney went around to all the states and he came to, um, we had a net session, Cameron White, myself, and we're just bowling to some batters. And I love the fact of how generous he was with his time. So we're going through a lot of things and he was just ticking them off. And I've shared a lot of those already today. But the greatest Part it was, he said, oh, I, you know, let's go and get a coffee. So we're sitting in the Hugh Trumbull Cafe there and people are around and, you know, they're sort of getting their lunch and whatever and looking around and going, oh, that's interesting. And he's breaking up paddle pop sticks and setting fields on the table. It was around the time that Simon Kadich was having his most incredible summer. I think he scored 1,500 runs. He was <laughs> Superman in whites. He was unbelievable. He was making runs for fun and it was causing headaches for everyone. And we just devised a plan and, and, and what to do and how to go about it. So using the paddle pops, the paddle pops for the fielders, 
Yeah, so he broke them up into, you know, little pieces of the paddle pop stick like that, and then he'd break them up into little bits. And so we had those and we're set in a field, how we'd do that. And, oh, for these type of players, this is what you need to do. And then he could just move this player around there. And it was unreal. And he's a pretty busy guy and probably had some poker to play. I don't know, um, you know. <laughs> but it just sharing the strategy of the game, you know, in that moment, the hour and a half we had bowling and then probably – another hour having a coffee and, and a bit of lunch, moving paddle pop sticks around on the table at the MCG was pretty amazing. Like everyone, he, he made them feel really good. I'd played one test, got belted everywhere. Every time he saw me at the commentary box, it was like he gave me the same greeting and I saw him greet Mark Taylor. He gave me the same greeting, but you're one of us. And he had that knack of making everyone feel pretty cool and just made everyone feel that way. And, you know, I'm really grateful that, we were able to spend moments together. I was grateful that I was able to watch him and then he shared his mind about the game. And, uh, yeah, and it, a lot of it was fun. It was just fun. He just made the game fun. He's smiling, fun. Bowling leg spin can be stressful, but he just made it fun. So you just remembered why you did it and it was fun. And after talking to him about those things throughout my journey, that became part of my pre-match routine. I still do it now. Just thinking about, well, why do I do this? What's going to happen today? Well, I do this because it's a whole lot of fun. I do it because I love cricket. And I'm 10 years old as a young kid playing for Mornington. That's why I'm doing it, because I love it. And I reckon he played every game like that, and it showed. He did it with a smile, an aggressive smile at times. You know, when he was doing T20 and he shared it with the world, what he was thinking, and he, he opened his mind by talking through him being mic'd up. He spoke a bit like Popeye out the side of his mouth, so he, I don't know why he was doing that, but that's how he did it And uh, at the top of his mark and and just sharing his knowledge about the game and predicting what the batsman will do and what he's going to force them to do and getting them out. Just amazing stuff. Yeah, we're so lucky that he went into the commentary box and shared a lot of that wisdom with everyone as well because he's an absolute cricket genius. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome. Great to catch up. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets.